I think sustainability is a good proxy for overall management quality because the folks that care about sustainability have long-term vision for their companies. A lot of what sustainability is, they can see where the market is going. They know that it adds value. They're not seduced by what is the upfront cost. They're willing to get into the financial modeling. They're willing to get into tenant experience and comps and what they're hearing and listen to their brokers and make the commitments and have, have sort of the leeway and the integrity to make those commitments. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Sarah Neff, who's the head of sustainability for Lendlease's Business in the Americas. I heard Sarah speak at the ULI San Francisco's recent Housing the Bay Conference and was blown away by her intelligence, her tip of the tongue command of the carbon issue for our industry, and her energy in speaking. I do not usually harp on this, but energy and charisma in the case of work on climate change really matters, since there's a hugely important need for the ability to inspire and communicate on this topic, which needs its resonators, and Sarah clearly has that skill. Last year, I dedicated both Leading Voices episodes in August to climate change, which always feels particularly urgent in August at my home office in hot and dry Sonoma County. This year, we have this conversation with Sarah, and in two weeks, a conversation that I'm planning to record live in Copenhagen with Michael Colville Anderson, the author of the book Copenhagenize and the host of the podcast series called The Life Size City. I've been trying to find a guest to talk about the impact and opportunity of bike share and bike lanes on our urban environments, which, as you know, is a passion for me as a cyclist. And this is finally it. Do check out last August's Two Leading Voices podcast on climate. One was with Greg Smithies from Fifth Wall, and the other was a conversation with Marta Shantz from the ULI's Greenprint Center for Building Performance and Elena Altshuler, head of America's Sustainability for LaSalle. And you'll note a lot of discussion around climate on our most recent episode with Doug Bibby and Ed Walter, as well as a long coda on the interview with Owen Thomas from Boston Properties, who's been a leader at his company in tackling carbon and who also just made a huge gift to fund ULI's Net Zero Decarbonization Initiative. As with every episode on Leading Voices, this one is a conversation both for leaders in the business to get inspired on topics, and on this case, to get on board and raising the bar in their companies on decarbonization. It's also a conversation to inspire young people planning a career in sustainability to join us in the real estate sector. There is huge work to be done in our business, and I think an amazing opportunity to move the needle on carbon through careers in real estate. We are looking forward at ZRG, where we have the ability to work across industries on topics like decarbonization to bring innovation and best practices in sustainability to real estate companies. Call me if we could be helpful. I hope that you're enjoying the show. As always, please follow or subscribe so that you do not miss an episode we release on the first and third Mondays of every month. Please share this and other episodes, especially our series on sustainability with your friends and colleagues. And if you have comments, feedback, or guest ideas, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Sarah Neff. Sarah Neff, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Although we're recording this in early July, this conversation is my second annual Got to do it in hot August climate change leading voices interview series. We did it last summer, and I interviewed Elena Altschuler from LaSalle and Marta Shantz from ULI's Greenprint Center and Greg Smithies from the Climate Tech Group at Fifth Wall. And so we're doing it again this summer because I live in hot Sonoma County, hot, fiery Sonoma County. So I'm a little obsessed with climate change. And you are the climate person at Lendlease for North America. So I want to talk about that. And I'm going to shut up and let you introduce yourself, Sarah, to our audience so we can get started. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I am Sarah Neff. I'm the head of sustainability 
or Lendlease in the Americas. For those who aren't familiar with Lendlease, Lendlease is a global company with Australian heritage. And in the United States, our businesses include uh, pure construction business, investment, management, and development, as well as a large standalone business unit uh, with Google, building a 15 million square foot um, project in Silicon Valley with them. And we are also the largest operators of military housing with 40,000 homes and all of the military's hotels. And I get to run sustainability across all of those business units. So, and that sustainability includes the existing assets. So the long-term hold assets are those 40,000 homes and others. Yes, there are the 40,000 homes plus the um, existing assets in the investment management business. Right. In North America. So this is a global company. And so you'll have some perspective on global approaches to this. One question is, are we behind? Are we ahead when you think globally in the Lendlease platform or globally in the real estate world? So while we have a lot of bright spots, I have always looked to actually Australia for leadership in sustainability for a variety of reasons. I have found throughout my career that the fastest way to figure out what we would be working on in America in three to five years time is to go to a conference and listen carefully for an Australian accent and then ask that person what they're working on. And uh, time and time again, it's whatever we'll be tackling um, in the next few years. So that's where beginnings of buildings and health came from, TCFD, science-based targets, embodied carbon. All of those were uh, concepts that I heard about um, from somebody in Australian real estate first. I will also say that I look a lot to my counterparts in Europe where there's a lot more regulation and disclosure about all things sustainability, not just real estate. And also where, at least for our British um, business, they have a lot more access universally to uh, 100% green power through renewable energy tariffs through their utilities. So in a way that I don't universally have the ability to flip a switch and get 100% renewable power, I can in some of my markets, just not all. That seems a lot more easily available um, in Europe. So lots of great things happening. I will also say the other major difference is just how jobs get bid. Um, so for big development projects, there is a requirement about around a big social focus in Australia and Europe. We're seeing the beginnings of that here, but it's not quite so business as usual to have a big social engagement as part of a development project. It's interesting when you say Australia, I think of companies with colder climates would be the leaders, not countries with warm climates. And Australia obviously has a warm climate, but they're leaders in sustainability. Maybe it's an island. I don't know. Um, well, you know, having a really hot climate, I mean, Australia is prone to a whole lot of extreme weather. I'm hailing in from Los Angeles, and I've certainly looked to my counterparts in Australia on how you deal with fire, extreme heat, a lot of the climate resilience stuff that we deal with in California, they deal with in a very large way in Australia. So um, we have a, have a lot of mutual understanding of, of climate resilience. And then uh, they also uh, have drought issues, right? So the buildings have had to adapt to drought um, for a very long time. Um, many of the sort of most forward-thinking buildings um, in Sydney um, have done black water recycling for a really long time. You don't see that in any big city in America. And that is uh, as a result of understanding climate impacts. Makes sense. So we have a lot to unpack in our conversation conversation today. And some of this is going to be a review from things that have been discussed on Leading Voices before. But let's start big picture and then start to come into what it is that you get to do at Lendlease. And so big picture, talk about this 40% number, if that's the right number for real estate dealing with carbon. So real estate represents 40% of climate emissions in the U.S. That depends a little bit, fluctuates depending on the city you're in. If you're a city like New York, where there's a lot more buildings and sort of fewer cars, then it's going to be a higher percentage. But overall, yes, real estate represents 40% of U.S. climate emissions. I always like to say that our buildings are invisible. We spend 90% of our time indoors, and yet we just don't think of our buildings as something that impacts either our bodies or the environment, particularly buildings are passive. You get used to them. They don't move. You're not putting gas in them. And so like you do with your car. And, and so we, we don't really think about buildings as these large consumers of energy and large contributors to climate change. But yet they are. They also have major impacts in terms of the percentage of our landfills that are taken up by you know waste from buildings and the amount of water they use. The impact of real estate on climate change is very, very large. And, and there's double counting here because if the buildings are, say, 40 percent and the buildings are heated by plants that come from coal, then the uh, the 
elect the electrifying plants may also take credit for the same 40%, right? What you're talking about is one of the reasons that real estate stays invisible because we think of, okay, we have to look at the utility. Oh, we have to look at the person who made the aluminum, the person who made the steel, the person who made the concrete. And because real estate is sort of farther down the supply chain, we don't think about it. But yet, you know, energy efficiency, for example, is critically important because there's losses along transmission lines. So you save, you know, one kilowatt, you know, at the building, and then that's equivalent to more than a kilowatt of savings, you know, at the at the utility plant. Uh-huh. And how much of the 40% is the built environment? How much is the building environment? Oh, I'm sorry. You're talking about uh, new construction versus existing buildings, right? I think that, I think those numbers are about right. Something like 90% of the buildings that will exist in 2050 exist now. So a lot of the carbon emissions are related to what the existing buildings are doing. I will say that that's very much true of you know, worries about energy and whatnot, but new buildings use a whole lot of concrete and a whole lot of steel. And that is a giant, giant impact on climate change. Um, those materials are very, very climate change intensive. And so, yes, absolutely, we must always focus on existing buildings, but unless we're focused on building materials, we're not really going to hit our targets. Understood. And then how much of this, particularly the built environment, are buildings that we can get our hands on as a real estate industry versus buildings that are family homes? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. Um, I will say I see some green shoots out there in terms of being able to to reach class B and C. But I I think the last numbers I looked at were that I think we've transformed the top 25% of buildings in the U.S., which leaves 75% of the buildings more or less untouched. We've done well. There's market transformation there, certainly in terms of code and new building and whatnot, but there's a large swath of the market. Like you said, the family-owned, you know, this one apartment building, that single-family home, this mom-and-pop shop, this nail salon that we're not doing a great job of touching. I do see improvements. There are companies that do know how to reach those class B and C properties. The nice thing about those properties is, is that their systems are simpler. And so retrofit it can be a little more you know, in a box as opposed to something that has to be custom designed by an engineer every single time. And so those who have figured out how to unlock value for the homeowner, for the business owner, usually by not requiring anything upfront, but taking a percentage of value at sale, have had success in that market. And so I'm hopeful that we see more of that transformation. Yeah, thank you. And But again, let me just drill on the same question, sure. which is the amount of the problem. How much of the amount of the problem could kind of be addressed by institutional real estate owners when we say it's 40%? And then how much is the amount of the problem, say, individual homeowners? It just 50-50, you know, any sense of estimate of this? I think it's probably generously 30 to 40% of the problem can be solved by institutional real estate, but this changes all the time. You know, we have Blackstone's raising $2 billion a month. So a lot more sort of real estate is becoming institutional than was in recent years. Um, and so, you know, and that new real estate will, will get its own mandates and, and whatnot around sustainability, environmentalism. But yeah, I think that we're probably looking at the top quarter of the market in terms of what institutional real estate is able to really touch. Okay. And then... Help me think psychologically, if if that word is fair to you as, as just another human being, but how do you deal with a problem that may seem insolvable or that you have to boil the ocean to get there? And we only have 10 or 15 years to do it because it's our, our Armageddon if we don't get there by then. How do we approach this and how do we approach all of the multiple things that have to happen at the same time to get there? Absolutely. So I think about this problem a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think the important thing to realize is that in real estate, for the most part, and certainly a lot better than it is in other industries, I'm thinking here, you know, aluminum, concrete, steel, automotive, uh, whatnot, the financial and the environmental are, are aligned. You know, when you, you, when you emit less carbon, you're paying less money in operating expenses almost universally. Now, there's it gets that benefit. Is it a landlord? Is it a tenant? It depends on the lease. Have you have energy line leases and whatnot? But real estate has really great alignment between finance and the environment. And really the issue is having other people who make those financial decisions see the benefit, be willing to wait for a payback at, and adding value to the assets. So I'm really heartened in recent years. You know, when I go to industry conferences talking to capital markets people, they can now 
talk about sustainability without looking uncomfortable. They, they get the basic lingo. They know what it is they're, they're asking for. They have some metrics. They know how to measure it. And so with that capital, it's going to become more and more companies who um, realize they have to get going on sustainability because that is what their LPs or whoever else is holding their stocks or their debt is going to want. And so they have to step up for that. And they are, you know, some mm. more than others. So I see, so I get hopeful because I see the financial case being there. I see tenants wanting it. I see the investors wanting it. I see the ratings agencies also putting pressure on, on the real estate industry. So there's a lot of factors that weren't there when I started my career to really spur real estate companies to make change. And then where those market conditions don't don't make the change happen fast enough, we do see a proliferation of building codes um, that do. So we see all electric legislation popping up all over America. We see building disclosure ordinances. We see performance mandates like we see in Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. And so, you know, and that is what's going to bring up the rest of the market, including, you know, those small, you know, those smaller assets, depending on what they are that we were talking about earlier. Uh And those codes are now fast and furious. You mentioned a couple of these things, but the investors care in different ways. Local government cares. Federal government cares, but we'll talk about the Supreme Court in a minute. And insurers care. Maybe that's the stick, not the carrot. So talk about uh, all of those aligned. And it used to be that everyone just wanted payback. Does it pay back quick enough to meet, to help my IRR every day versus there's a mandate, I got to do it anyhow. So talk about each of those things. I will say that I think sustainability folks and myself absolutely included um, did ourselves a disservice 10 years ago when we all started our careers, um, a sort of my cohort of leaders of sustainability of various real estate companies by teaching um, everybody we work with at every time we did anything, there was a payback. And then all of a sudden things got more complicated and we weren't just doing energy efficiency retrofits. All of a sudden we needed to care about climate resilience analysis and building health and scope three emissions. And there wasn't a payback for everything. And all of a sudden everybody's like, but wait, there's no payback. Why are we, why are we doing this? And it's not like your investor says, well, what's the IRR and having a beautiful building versus an ugly building, right? Like there's not, you don't make an architect be like, give me the payback, give me the financial model on your beautiful versus ugly. You want the beautiful building that people will lease. Right. And so we're, we're moving away from that. So I'll start with investors. Sustainability has sort of long been seen there's been a lot of research showing that sustainability is a great proxy for overall management quality, which is ultimately what you want as an investor. You want overall management quality. It's what you're trying to get at. And performance on sustainability is a great predictor of overall management quality. And so the market has shifted. You know, we saw the impact investing market triple in size between 2012 and 2018. And then during COVID, it added another $15 trillion and the ESG you know, funds outperformed the S&P during COVID. So the financial case is clear, even for those who don't have mandates from you know, pensioners or whatnot uh, to, you know, for values-based reasons doing this, it's quite clear that this is what makes financial sense. So the investors are there, some because they have mandates from their own LPs and whatnot, and also because the financial case is there. For ratings agencies, you know, we have this issue of climate risk. There are clear places in the country where uh, assets are riskier, where there have been multiple extreme weather events and there will likely be more of them. And so ratings agencies um, have seen that as material and want to incorporate that into how they rate a company. So for insurance, the insurance industry is in an interesting place. I haven't seen an, in, an insurer exit a market. I said, you know what, I'm not going to insure in Houston anymore. I'm not going to insure on this shoreline or that shoreline. But it is something they are tracking quite heavily. It is certainly affecting premiums and everybody's feeling that pain. So the insurance industry is there. They haven't driven the conversation as much as maybe the investors have and the ratings agencies have, but it's certainly something that is impacting premiums across the market. And that's going to be really important. Um, And then tenants on, on a variety of asset types really care about sustainability. And and obviously it depends, you know, I'll say in my opinion, this is Sarah's opinion only, you know, I I see a lot of alignment with sustainability and life science. The folks that go into life science are are mission driven. That's why they chose that career. Sustainability makes a lot of sense to them. I I find life science tenants to be very forward thinking on sustainability office, especially big office and tech tenants. Again, this is the alignment of their employee base. It gets a little more inconsistent when you're talking about 
um, residential because, you know, it's just an individual preference and some are really invested in it and some aren't. And also we have our own arcane sort of language around certifications and scores and whatnot that are sort of hard for a layperson to understand. Industrial actually is doing well in sustainability for a variety of reasons. A lot of that is because they have so much room for solar on those big warehouse roofs. Big roofs, yep. Yeah, big roofs. So those tenants, you know, they they want to see the energy savings. A lot of them get to be mission driven as well. And then retail can be more difficult on sustainability for a variety of reasons. The the way the leases are typically written and whatnot make it more difficult. And electrifying food and beverage is hard. But we see the pressure from and then from government, from codes, from the media, and all of that has really really driven change um, throughout the real estate market. So if we take all of those and then think about government for a second, and one of the mm-hmm. conversations I had with someone last week was if a city demands a certain level of carbon efficiency in all buildings, can they do it on a portfolio basis of all the buildings? Because some buildings just aren't going to be able to be retrofitted to that degree where other buildings could very easily be retrofitted. So it's not always cost effective, but if you look at the whole portfolio, it works. Any yeah. comments on that level of subtlety, particularly with government regulation? Yeah, I mean, City of Ithaca, for example, recently just voted to decarbonize, which means electrify your assets and get to 100% renewable power. I think, I mean, the folks who created that legislation are full well, well aware that some buildings are going to be easier to do than others, but doesn't mean they're not getting started. Doesn't mean that the modeling and software isn't um, in place. So I see cities, some of them sort of, are able to do this on a portfolio level. Some of them are just like, we're going to, we're going to write this law and we're going to enforce it and, you know, see what the innovation is and see what happens. And so, yes, maybe some buildings will have a problem complying, but maybe those fines are paying for retrofits for other buildings that have a better, you know, shot at it. So I think cities are really where the innovation is coming in terms of code to make sustainability happen. So many of the big cities in America have passed some sort of legislation around making existing buildings more efficient, as well as making sure that new buildings are efficient. And so I think that's really, really where we're going to see a lot of the of the change sort of get accelerated is going to be on the city level. Mm-hmm. And what is the impact of the Supreme Court decision against the EPA on the ability, say, for cities to do this or for the ability to, for the EPA to have a global best practices approach at, at a minimum? I don't see the Supreme Court decision as reducing any momentum whatsoever uh, in cities' uh, willingness to drive forward on climate change. One of the things that I learned um, as part of uh, President Biden's policy committees when, in 2020 was that the a lot of the ability for the federal government to influence buildings really happens through through influence, influence through the state energy program um, and into the cities and through model building codes and whatnot. The federal government certainly can regulate, you know, the GSA portfolio, right? That's and they're the biggest landlords. So that's very very large. But in terms of the government's ability to say you can build a building in Wichita like this and not like that, that's not really what our federal government does. You know, they they can have incentive programs. And they can have accelerators and learning and proving grounds and whatnot. But those sort of levers they play, states have their own energy programs. And so the Supreme Court decision is really disheartening. Absolutely. But I think it's going to only spur more drive from the investor base, from the ratings agencies, and potentially from insurance on all of the sort of headwinds I was talking about earlier. The EPA wasn't really regulating buildings to begin with. Um, And this change, while intensely disheartening is something that I worry a lot about more in terms of how are you regulating big industry? What is, what's going to happen with, you know, emissions from, from plants and utilities. Buildings were already doing their own thing uh, in terms of decarbonizing and that train has left the station. Cool. So let me go back to your disheartening comment and the buildings. So the Supreme Court, because what I might've heard here is that the Supreme Court decision doesn't matter but it doesn't matter as much to our industry, but other industries, which we care about equally because we live in the same earth, those industries may have less regulation around them on this stuff, given the Supreme Court decision. That's correct. Those industries will probably have less regulation. We'll definitely have less regulation as as a result of this, and that will make it hard for us to decarbonize in our supply chains. For example, if I make it harder for me to get 100% renewable power or low-carbon steel or whatever it is, absolutely. I am deeply saddened by the decision that has been made. 
but I also think that there is intense market pressure around sustainability. Now, that's not going away. It's what the customer base wants. So you have, for example, um, we're part of an organization called Responsible Steel, whose firm is called Steel Zero, about getting to 50% reduced carbon steel. There is a, that is a consortium of buyers across many, many industries. The steel industry has message. You know, net neutral steel is available on the market now. They didn't have to get regulated to get there. They got there because that's what the customer wanted and it's that's working for them. We're seeing the same thing in concrete. And so we, yes, this will certainly the Supreme Court is not decision is not going to make things easier, but we at Lendlease hope that the pressure for voluntary commitments and hitting those targets is going to become even more important from all those other market players. And the companies are going to step up and uh, make the choice because it makes financial sense or at levels. Cool. Uh, I have this concept, and I know it's going to be the case, that this uh, supermajority in the Supreme Court is there for 30 years or 25 years. And climate change is going to be even more obvious in 10 years. And I think they're going to say what my kid says when they spill something, which is, oops, and they'll find ways to make decisions that have to be made work at a point where we into the future. What I do want to talk about is what you're able to do at Lendley. So now that we have yeah. context for what these issues are, what these issues are in the built environment and the environment in context in which we're working, doing our work, talk about what you get to do at Lendlease and let's break it down into different areas of your work so that we can mm -hmm. see that you're able to make progress and start wherever you want. Absolutely. Well, I'll just start with my favorite stuff. So when we do our analysis of our all of our carbon emissions, what becomes clear to us is Lendlease, again, does pure construction and does a lot of development. And yes, we have these 40,000 military homes and we're always renovating them and there are emissions there, but most of our emissions are in the embodied carbon of our assets, of our, of our construction materials, the concrete, the steel, the aluminum, the glass, the gypsum, the whatever. And so we are, my favorite work that I do here is rapidly decarbonizing those materials. And what we're finding is that it's not universally easy everywhere we go, but you can on a cost neutral basis from a baseline of, you know, what is the average, you know, carbon intensity of a particular product in that particular region, you can cut 10 to 20 or more percent out, just keeping cost neutral, just by asking all the suppliers to provide you with the environmental product information before you do the buy and keeping performance and cost neutral, picking the lowest carbon you know, material without changing the design of the project, you know, and without impacting and impacting the cost. So on typical concrete, are there variations of concrete? Talk about that. So there's a tool out there called EC3, the Environmental Carbon in Construction Calculator that basically easily allows, and it's a free tool, anybody can download it, that easily allows anybody to compare the environmental impact of a variety of materials, concrete being one. So um, there are documents called environmental product declarations. Concrete companies have these. Um, they're in the tool. Then the tool can say, okay, here's, you know, here are all the concretes that would meet your requirements and you can pick the lowest carbon one. And that really enables that kind of choice. And so at Lendlease, we're really good before we buy a job of calling up all the concrete suppliers and all the steel suppliers and saying, okay, what are our options? And sometimes when we're building for a third party, often we have to keep cost neutral. Okay, here's the best you can do for the cost you have. But sometimes we have clients that say, you know what? I want the lower carbon stuff. I'm willing to pay a little more for it. And thank you for bringing this option to my attention. And we're able to do it that way. So we're really good, A, at understanding our supply chain, B, at bringing this proactively to our clients. And now we're in the really fun stuff where we're actually trying to influence the supply chain itself. So what am I talking about? So, for example, we just signed our first non-binding letter of interest for a zero-carbon Portland cement replacement company uh, to say, okay, if you can keep price performance schedule um, neutral, yep, want to buy your product in this region, and that's going to enable them to go get financing and scale up. Because really where we are with materials is we have a lot of really cool ideas out there for low-carbon materials, but we need to get them to market faster. We don't have 10 years to wait. And so that's where I see Lendlease really playing a big role here is, I mean, there's other stuff that I can't yet talk about um, in this in that space as well. But how do we signal to the market, yes, if you have a good product and it's passed all of its testing, scale it up. We want it. I don't want one batch. I don't want one little, you know, 
ton of concrete here. I wanted enough for a building, for a portfolio of buildings. Um, and so I'm really excited about that work of actually changing the materials that are available. Measuring all this stuff is a complete nightmare, um, but we are navigating all of that. There's not a standard. There's many different, what are called life cycle assessment, LCA tools. They all do it fairly differently. You can fiddle with the baselines. So these things are a little tricky in their execution, but we are seeing just really, really rapid success. You know, if you'd asked me 12 months ago when I started at Lendlease, you know, Sarah, when do you think net neutral steel will be available on the market? I would have said, I don't know, 2030, but it's available now. You know, there's a company that, you know, figured out how to electrify all of its arc furnaces, has a contract for 100% renewable power to, to power them and has 100% recycled scrap. Like that's not neutral steel. And I'll ask a dumb question because I talk about embodied carbon in either concrete yeah. or steel. Once it's been delivered and it's sitting on a, in a high rise, how do you actually do a calculation that looks at the life cycle of that to know what it was? And then how does it get better? Right. So to provide some framing, you know, steel yeah. represents a percent of global climate emissions. Concrete represents something like 6%. So these are big, big contributors to global climate change. Steel is what percent? I'm sorry. Eight. Okay. Eight and concrete six. Yeah. Okay. So the two is 14%, right? I mean, it's just enormous. There is a robust and maturing field of life cycle assessments for exactly what you're talking about. So again, the field, the field evolves, but there's many tools out there that do exactly what it is that we're talking about. You give it all the environmental, what are called the environmental product declarations for all the materials you used and how much of them you used. And the calculator will spit out, here's the embodied carbon per square foot. So it starts with the environmental product declaration and then you know, and then these things can get refined more and more. Now, there are obvious nuances to this. You know, are you counting carbon release during demolition or transportation to demolition? I mean, there's there's something like, oh, don't quote me on this, but more than a dozen sort of ways of thinking about the emissions related to building products. Companies sort of need to set their own rules around what's in and what's out. It's probably not going to be everything and then calculate from there. So it's still a little bit tricky to make sure everybody's comparing apples to apples, but when the tools are out there, they're being used all the time and they're getting more sophisticated. So there's so many topics and so many drill downs on all these things that you're saying, but talk about, let's switch for a second to obsolete buildings versus new buildings. And what's the cost of tearing something down versus the cost of retrofitting something obsolete? And it may be market obsolete, but it may also be climate obsolete. Like, help? how do you figure that one out? It's a difficult calculation. I mean, we green building professionals are taught the greenest brick is the one that's already in the building. So um, if you can save an old building, obviously you should. Here are some reasons why you might not want to do that. One is density. If it's a small building on a lot and you're building, you know, a large building on the same lot, you're going to be able to get density, reduce transportation and all that good stuff. So you know, that would be an argument to, to not renovate. Um, but many, many arguments for renovation. Some of my favorite projects that I worked on um, in my prior role um, were historic renovations. And especially when they can, you know, preserve some cultural heritage, that's absolutely wonderful if they're able to be refit to purpose. So really the question is, does the existing building have the bones to be refit to um, a current use? And if it does, there's probably a way to figure out how to do it. If it doesn't, you know, if you have a one story, 2000 foot square foot radio station, and you'd like to build a 600,000 square foot office building on the same lot, you're probably going to tear it down the radio station. So, you know, there's a cost benefit analysis here. Can the old building, does it, does it have the, the structure it needs to be able to adapt or not? Yeah. It's interesting. Given particularly our office supply, and you worked at an office company last, I'm trying to think about how that obsolete office supply that people don't want to go to it's either just ugly or it has bad circulation or it can't be retrofitted well. And then that decision, and is someone willing to tear it down and bring, build something new? And I, there's a, just a lot of math. If there's a lot of performance. I mean, right now, new construction is hard. I mean, the return on cost is, is a rough calculation. Where things get really tricky is where the bones are good, but eventually we are going to need to um, remove a natural gas system from a building. Um, the mixed fuel to all electric retrofit for an existing asset is, it's not that it hasn't been done, but it's been done precious few times. And so to provide some context on that, we know that we need to get to, at Lendlease, 100% electric buildings. At Lendlease, we have what we call our mission zero goals, um, which 
be scope one and scope two carbon neutral by 2025, and then absolute zero across all three scopes, no offsets by 2040. Those are the most ambitious carbon uh, goals in all of real estate. Um, it is my pleasure to get to um, help us um, get on our way to that target. And so one of the things we know we need to do is that if we're going to get to absolute zero, the natural gas grid infrastructure cannot get to 100% renewables. There just isn't any projection that shows that that's the case. The electric the electric grid can get to 100% renewable. So we know eventually we have to have all of our buildings only use electricity and not use natural gas. That gets really, really hard to plan for for an existing asset that you've acquired because you know replacing that infrastructure is, is costly. It's hard to engineer. It's not a really a known uh, retrofit quantity right now. But you know, as more and more folks start working in the space, we're going to see more and more really positive case studies coming out of it. I read half of John Doerr's book, and John Doerr's book has this sector does this, and this sector does that, and the other sector does that. And if we all do it at the same time, and we all do it together, and we all do it to an 80% effectiveness, we're going to be okay. And yeah. so that gets to the issues of someone just bought a value-add apartment building, and their plan in the value-add is not to electrify the building. They have natural gas lines in there for the stoves. It's just going to be there. And that may never get gotten. And the next buyer is going to buy it with that same dynamic in there. And the investor is going to accept that purchase. And we have affordability issues. So we're balancing all those things. Lendlease may get to total zero, but Lendlease doesn't own that stuff. Although maybe you own that stuff in military housing. So how do you square those different dynamics at the same time? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, Lendlease, we, we believe very strongly in our mission zero goals. And so we know that if we buy an existing asset, we're not a, you know, we're not a merchant build. We are going to be a longer term hold. And so we want that asset to be energy efficient. And we know that retrofit is going to have to go in there. Now, I'll say that we, you know, if you look at our mission zero roadmaps, which are available publicly online, um, I don't see us starting that mixed field all electric retrofit work for a while. It doesn't pencil yet. It's just, that's not where it is, but it's getting there. And there's a bunch of smart people working on this issue. And so I have a lot of confidence that we will get there. We will get to the point where that re those retrofits are, are less sort of fundamental and traumatizing right now. They're, they're not easy. And those that have been done have had special, you know, circumstances. I got a grant here. I had a historical heritage mandate there, whatnot. This is also becoming exacerbated because um, with climate change, you talked earlier about being from Sonoma and with Los Angeles where it gets hot, you know, people are increasingly putting in air conditioning, right? And so now we have this sort of funding effect of the climate change, which causes the heat and the people in the air conditioning, which causes more climate change, and which causes more heat and more and so on. So we're going to get back to real estate in a moment, but I'm wondering a cultural dynamic behavior that we might predict is going to be the case in 30 years. Years ago, I went to Israel, and in Israel, people, when they go to work, wear shorts and a light shirt because and they don't wear a tie and they don't wear a jacket because that's normal in a work environment in a really hot country. And maybe in 20 years, probably already happened because of COVID here in America, but those behaviors will, would have to be changed. Your thermostat's going to be four degrees less comfortable according to what we've gotten used to here in the States. I bet that's inevitable. I think that there are many passive strategies, especially for a home, that we just haven't had to exploit in America because our energy has been cheap and it's not so expensive to buy an air conditioning unit. But it's not that it's impossible. Where America needs to do is get better at commissioning its building envelopes, which is still new. It's an optional point in lead and nobody likes paying for it. So we need better, we need better building envelopes. And we also need some more education. You know, it's not just the set it and forget it, that it, that it was earlier at certain times of the day, we're needing to open doors and windows to, you know, let, let fresh air in, let some heat out. We're shutting things up at night to try to heat up. You know, there, there's other behavior components to this, but it's not, it's not impossible. And, you know, we find a certain percentage of our residents really, really enjoy this. Um, they mentioned on the customer satisfaction surveys that sustainability is important to them. So they are, uh, it, you know, it is something that that is deeply important to us. Fair deal. And there were behavioral changes that become normal. When I brush my teeth as a kid, I keep the water running for the entire cycle of the toothbrush. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that changed years ago. But, you know, things like that are small changes that we all make. But again, we're talking about big stuff. Or we're talking about industry right now. Let's come back to Lend-Lease and then we're going to change the subject. 
you guys have a big canvas and we're working with Lendlease and the Google Ventures team on some of these giant district developments. These aren't building developments. These are community developments. And when you have that kind of canvas, you can afford to amortize the cost of a lot of things over a big platform. So A, you're a big platform to begin with, and then B, that you're painting on a big platform canvas. Talk about some of those opportunities and how you can really move the needle in those kind of projects. Absolutely. I am so excited for the Google project because so many there's just so many great people working on so many really fun ideas happening. That embodied carbon piece that I was talking about earlier, I see that project making those kind of supply chain partnerships and really helping to multiply and elevate around you know, all of the hardscape that's going into the horizontal plane as well as the uh, buildings on those developments that Lendlease is controlling. So there's there's a lot of opportunity there, a lot of opportunity to be really strategic around solar um, because there's so many assets. So, you know, where might we putting a battery? Where are we, you know, using this piece of infrastructure? You know, how is the solar going to work? Are we talking about solar over mechanical or just on the flat roof? You know, there's there's a lot of options and really, really fun stuff there. Um, super great, big sustainability targets. They're going to be really energy efficient. They're all going to be, you know, lead gold and platinum buildings. They're going to be connected to district thermal, district energy systems. The whole thing will be all electric, you know, including food and bev. So um, there's a lot great, a lot of great stuff going on at GDV that we're really excited about. You know, I'll use the the food and beverage example. All electric is hard for food and beverage. You know, cooks are used to cooking with fire. And while every cook who has ever tried it loves induction stoves very, very much, they love the control, they love um, the precision, they love how it heats, it's a bit safer, but getting them to that place is difficult, right? And so Google, um, which I really appreciate, has the mandate that said, no, no, you said it was going to be an electric project. This is going to be an all electric project, which means the new restaurants coming in need to only use all electric uh, cooking equipment. And we're seeing that those changes happen now um, and they'll only be replicated more. So, so much to be excited about at Google Development Ventures. Yeah. And it's interesting that you have a client who's on your side. We've talked about investors, but this is a different kind of client than would be investors or government. And it's one that has a self-interest in being forward thinking Yes. I, I want to think about the ripple effects of that self-interest. And once you prove out these components and you're able to take the risk with Google on this, then how does that come then back to the rest of the industry so the rest of us could do it that don't have the dollars to afford a person like you, as well as all the great work that you're doing here? Yeah. So um, on the social side of things, there is a sort of a council of um of representatives from area nonprofits that are determining how that's going to work. And I think that's a great model to be replicated. Like let's not have the real estate owner guess what's going to benefit the community. You know, let's, let's take in the people who are currently helping the community ask and ask what you can do for them. That's probably a better way to learn about what's going on. So that is one way that we're going to be sort of amplifying that story. Um, And then this is going to be one of our first opportunities to build all of our renewables in a, in a sort of a coherent strategy. Do you have technologies that you wind up investing in that then get, that can then ripple through the industry? Or are you just able to support a supplier to do something with enough scale so they could be successful? Yeah, it's the latter. So we have the ability to make partnerships that I do with um, various technology providers, you know, and then we're able to source all of those engagements. Uh, I will say that, you know, there's so much expertise out there in sustainability right now, especially if you're in any sort of large-ish city, um, then there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, we green building folk are very, very friendly um, and we uh, love helping other people answer their problems on sustainability. Fair deal. Before we talk about your career and how you got here so we can inspire other people to do what you're doing, any examples of something that might blow the minds of our listeners who don't know some of the most innovative things that are being done out there that'd be kind of interesting or cool? Yes. So my favorite project right now um, is actually comes out of my military housing business. Uh, we are going to be replacing the roofs off. We're constantly renovating the homes, right? The homes have to um, keep getting updated. And so one of the things that's sort of a, a sad about that is that, you know, we're, we're 
doing roof replacements on 3,000 roofs. And that is a lot of roof tile that all has to get landfilled and we have to pay for it. And that's really hard. And so uh, my director on that team, uh, Megan Saunders, who deserves all the credit for this initiative, somehow got in contact with a mycologist, a mushroom scientist. And so they shipped the mycologist a tub full of the roof tiles that were, you know, one of the roofs that, w- that got ripped off, um, got that ground down, waste hauler hauled it to the mycologist who seeded that sort of substrate with the mushrooms. They grew for several weeks. Uh, Results came out on uh, June 20th, but other people are validating them. So I can't quite say what's happened, but so far it's looking pretty good. Um, And so, and then the idea is then the, um, then that byproduct is then going to get sent back to the roof manufacturer, right? And so to and then try to use old roofs in new roofs. So, so that'll be great, sort of a circular economy um, thing that we're, we're working on that I'm uh, I really really love. So um, that's that's a fantastic project. And then uh, other things we're looking at in you know in America is how do we procure 100% renewable energy? You know, like where does right. that make sense on site? Where does it make sense to do that off site? You know, how do we how do we do that calculation? And any comments? It varies a lot. So um, and it, it really chases the utility incentives. So very different to do, for example, a big solar project in Hawaii where you have you know 30 plus cents as your cost of power makes sense all day long, makes a little bit less sense for stuff in Kentucky where power is about, you know, around six cents, I think the last I checked. And so, you know, it's really hard to get a payback on a project like that. So it, it really just depends on where projects are, what the opportunity is. You have a warehouse, you have so much room for solar. You got a, you know, CBD office building or high rise residential, life gets harder. Right. So back to the John Doerr book that says all of these sectors have to do their job. Think about, put real estate in context with that. We know it's 40%. And we know where we can be leveraging. We've talked about that, particularly for the institutional owners. How are we doing against what he might write as a chapter on real estate? I wish I knew whether or not our industry is doing enough. I feel that all of the right pieces are finally in place for the institutionally owned real estate to be making the right moves on climate change. It's only going to take codes and implementation of codes to move the rest of the industry. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen fast enough. We have all of the tools that are needed. We're not waiting around for new technology for the most part to get invented. Um, There's some exceptions, but mostly um, real estate is is a world of the world. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. I use an example, construction equipment. So uh, in Scandinavia, um, you know, they have access to all electric construction equipment. So you don't have to use fuels to power your excavator or your crane or your, you know, backhoe loader or whatever it is. We just did a study uh, with, let me stay with the University of Victoria, basically saying that all electric construction vehicles are not going to be universally available in the world by 2040. They're not, that is not projected to get there. Well, that is a problem because that is certainly a lot of my emissions. So is that sector going to decarbonize fast enough for real estate to do what the book says? I don't know. We, we have the ability. Those pieces of equipment already exist. It's a matter of getting them to where the work is. Uh-huh. So I want to change subject. And yes. I want to know how you got here to do this job. And mm-hmm. I know you were at Kilroy last, but talk about pre-Kilroy. And then we'll talk about Kilroy. And we don't have to talk about Lendley's because we already did. But how did he get into this? What was your training? What was your background? I have a very meandering background. Um, so I took a very winding path um, to my uh, to my current career. I graduated from college. Um, I'll just put it out there in 2010, which was not a great job market back then. Um, everything was crashing. And I decided to move to England for a while. I wanted to travel through the world. Moved to England for a while, came back, worked at, worked at a Shakespeare nonprofit, moved to India for a while, and then landed myself uh, in television. I had started dating my now husband, uh, who was a TV writer. And so um, I spent some some happy and more <laughs> difficult years working in entertainment uh, and basically got to the point of uh, you know, how many more shows about white people in New York am I going to work on before I die? You know, these are, this is just not what I wanted to do with my one life on earth. And I'd had somebody I respected a lot um, from undergrad make the transition from, from Hollywood to business school to do something around aligning financial and environmental interests. And I said, that is what I, what I need to be doing. 
So after spending a year working on my applications while working at Google, um, I went to business school to focus on what at Columbia is called social enterprise. And after that, really fell backwards into real estate. You know, it was back in the day where, you know, nobody had a head of sustainability for a real estate company, John Kilroy, um, who's a fantastic person. He's absolutely a visionary on a lot of things, not just sustainability, but really saw that sustainability what was, was what was happening. And he wanted to be the leader. And I was the right person in the right place at the right time. I got to start as the director of sustainability at Kilroy in 2010. And in 2010, you start at Kilroy Director of Sustainability because he gets it like an inexpensive young person to do this thing where they're going to be a leader because no one had a more expensive 10-year person. They didn't exist back then. There's nobody with a whole lot of yeah. tenure. Like one other person in Los Angeles, but for example, the NARI, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, at our first gathering, how many of us were there? 20, 30, I mean, so few. And now that number is in the, you know, dozens and I think we're up to over a hundred of people who for sustainability. So yes, it was a, it was young. It was a young, you know, the industry was really, really new. I mean, Killer wasn't the very, very first, but it was one of the very first. And because John gave me the, gave me sort of the leeway and the company had the right kind of tenants and the right mix in the right cities. And we were able to create, you know, the most award-winning sustainability program in North America. And so I, I created that program and we did things like declare that we were going to be the first carbon neutrally operating real estate investment trust in North America. We made that declaration that we'd get there by 2020. We declared that in 2018, got there in 2020, um, and then moved beyond that, you know, science-based targets, you know, getting the offsite power purchase agreement signed, carbon disclosure project, a lot of success on GRES, great success on energy efficiency, on-site and offsite renewables, water composting, you know, all, all the rest, a lot of EV charging work and a lot of work on health, which became really important during COVID. And so, yeah, I spent a, a very happy decade um, at Kilray. Um, as I previously stated, I would go to conferences and listen for an Australian accent to hear what I should be working on next. And so then when uh, Len Lease uh, needed um, a new head of sustainability for the Americas region, it seemed like a great opportunity to um, learn about new sectors within real estate and, um, you know, push things on sustainability to um, uh, a new, a different level. And that's what I'm doing here. Go backwards for a minute, talk about the meaning of the canvas within the Kilroy portfolio and the development it did, and then turbocharge that. Again, we don't have to go into details because we already did, but I'm just curious about the kind of the contrast between the two. Absolutely. So Kilroy has had actually a remarkably stable portfolio size for a long time. It does a lot of really, really strategic and very smart capital recycling. So it's always been somewhere around a 14 million square foot-ish portfolio. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And in that period of time of keeping that stable, you know, stock prices tripled and whatnot, um, as you get from lesser performing assets to higher performing assets. So I was really lucky to have about 100 buildings as my sandbox um, to drive energy efficiency, water efficiency, waste, EV charging, health, on-site renewables. If you can think of it, I probably did it at some point. But then we had a large development pipeline. And so I was able to drive sustainability and new development as well, which um, evolved a lot. You know, my first building that I got to work on went into demolition the day I started um, at Kilroy. So I was like, hey, can you get this thing lead certified? And you're like, uh, the CDs are already created. Every contract is already signed, but let me see what I can do. We did get that building to lead silver. That was a long, long time ago. I was very, very proud of it. And then we were able to figure out a lot of things. How do you put in a gray water system when it's being encouraged, but the health department has not said yet that they'll allow you to operate it. Um, navigating that, navigating our first um, biomimicry uh, inspired materials, navigating our first on-site solar. And so I cut my teeth in development there. I got to work on a, really, a lot of really, really exciting stuff. And, and basically what happened was every time we pushed the envelope on sustainability, the market rewarded it. You know, a tenant wanted it at least quickly, and then it pushed us to do more. And so we would have a lead gold building and that was great. And then we're like, wait, in this market, what happens if we go to platinum? We go to platinum and that would get leased up really quickly. And so, you know, that really created all this momentum around sustainability because, and this was without investors, it was without regulation. This was without ratings agencies. This was just us and our tenants. And that was drove so much change there. And how much of that dynamics, because you're in California, so your assets are all West Coast, West Coast is more blue, it's more green at the same time, would that be transferable and moving over to Lendlease, where you have a national platform in all kinds of markets, do you see more headwinds or is the acceptance of this equal elsewhere? 
I'm happy to say it's very transferable. So Lendlease operates in gateway cities. And as I mentioned earlier, cities are really where the innovation is happening in terms of pushing real estate on the environment. So we operate in New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles as our major markets. And in all of those cities, in various flavors, but in all of those cities, we see dramatic pushes towards legislation around buildings and and all of them have thriving green building communities and communities practice and innovation and tech and all the rest. So absolutely transferable. I have to learn about this code versus that code and which, what thing do I disclose where? Fine. There's nuances, but the overall point is the same. And then you might be wondering, well, what about the military portfolio, right? That's everywhere. You got stuff in Kentucky, you have stuff in Alaska, you have stuff in, you know, uh, Carolinas and Texas, you know, and the answer is the military housing portfolio, which um, I really, it is the deepest pleasure to work on that portfolio. You know, we run in partnership with the Department of Defense and the Department of Defense cares about saving operating money for taxpayers. It cares about the resident experience. I mean, it cares about resilience. And those things are all very much aligned with what I want to do um, in sustainability. And so we've had great success in that portfolio, no matter what sort of is happening with the legislation in that particular state or whatnot, um, because it just, it makes so much sense for the mission that the DOD is on with its military housing portfolio and able to be great partners there. I want to pick up on a comment you made a long time ago in the conversation it was an interesting one. You said that there's a pro- sustainability is a proxy for strong management, that investors have found that. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's a proxy or they just happen, they are aligned. If someone's forward thinking they're going to be a good manager and a good fiduciary, and they're probably thinking about sustainability too. Is it deeper than that? I think sustainability is a good proxy for overall management quality because the folks that care about sustainability have long-term vision for their companies. A lot of what sustainability is, they can see where the market is going. They know that it adds value. They're not seduced by what is the upfront cost. They're willing to get into the financial modeling. They're willing to get into tenant experience and comps and what they're hearing and listen to their brokers and make the commitments and have, have sort of the leeway and the integrity to make those commitments. And that's why I think it's a great proxy for overall management quality. Fair deal. We're going to start to wrap up. Personal question, which is how do you deal with this stuff? So you're dealing with existential stuff. I've heard a whole bunch of podcasts about young people who aren't having kids. They're scared to have kids to think about the world that's coming. So how do you hold this stuff? And we kept talking about John Doerr as another example and ministry of the future and all these, but I keep reading this stuff. But how do you hold this and how do you maintain either optimism, pessimism, or we're just going to plow through it? Any comments? Absolutely. I deal with the psychology of fighting climate change on a daily basis. How do I keep my my team, my fantastic team of 12 motivated? Um, and how do I keep all of Lendley's motivated? And there's a level at which we plow through. There is work to be done, so we do it. So there, there that is certainly part of it. But the other thing that's happening is... I am seeing change happen so quickly. It has never been more fun to do my job. It has never been more exciting on a day-to-day basis to think about doing procurement contracts for zero carbon, com- you know, cement, and to be and to be raising funds with um, sustainability mandates attached to them, and to um, be working on um, on-site solar and water recycling in a way that you know the the technology has gotten so good that that and the and the community of practice within the um, trades is such that nobody even blinks or says, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, the thing is, I really think that I'm making people like their jobs more. And so I think I help with the engagement. There are times like, you know, certain Supreme court rulings um, that that can make things uh, certainly a little bit harder. The other thing I will say about Lendlease is that the mission zero goals are, are not something we say out of lip service. You know, this was something that was decided by the highest levels of the company. We're not kidding. You know, we have such ambitious targets and, and it's really fun to work at a company where, you know, I get, I keep being told, Sarah, you said we, we agreed to zero. So how do we get to zero? When, once, what is the path to zero? Implement that. That's what you're hired to do. Go do it. And having that kind of upper management buy-in is, you know, priceless. So that's why I really love my job. I enjoy going to work every day. Yeah. It, you know, it's extraordinary when you come to 
I think of good guys and bad guys and moral and amoral and self-interested and not self-interested. But once you have a goal, none of those things matter. There's no judgment around it. Yeah. You have a goal. We're all going to get to the goal. We buy into the goal. So let's go forward. Let's beat the goal. It's competition. Absolutely. And I was lucky my entire career to have upper management buy-in. I mean, when I started at Killer, I'm not saying that everybody totally understood what sustainability was, but John Kilroy absolutely got it. And the board of directors absolutely got it. And, you know, we were able to, to really, you know, with baby steps, you know, make really, really big things happen there. Now, really what's happening in real estate is that companies have to figure out some sort of meaningful path to zero, not just like, oh, you know, I'm going to get there by 2070 or something irrelevant, um, but actually that a meaningful target and then really have to start making progress and have to do it quite quickly. And so uh, it's really fun time. Wonderful. So that pivots to the last question on leading voices, which is always the same, but a little bit modified for each guest. So the question is always, what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate industry? But in this case, for a young person who wants to get into the climate change business and make a difference in climate change, what brings them to real estate? Bring, help bring some of them over here. Absolutely. I. It is the most fun time to be starting in sustainability uh, right now because uh, real estate is exploding on this. There's never been more jobs um, than there are right now. There's never been a more fun project. I mean, the opportunities are crazy right now. This is just such a dynamic time. And so the great thing is you know, what we want to see is demonstrated interest in sustainability. Um, and so it's okay if you don't have the background, right? If you didn't have, I don't have an environmental degree. I didn't know sustainability didn't exist really when I was, you know, an undergrad, you know, that's fine. What I want is you to demonstrate the, the real interest that you have this sort of psychological stamina to keep, to keep working on it. So have you joined your local USGBC chapter or your other green organization? Are you planning events? Are you dealing with advocacy? see like whatever it is, there's so many ways to demonstrate interest, so many jobs to match what your particular area of interest is to a role. The financial side and the environmental side have always been really, really well aligned. And now uh, it's sort of our turn in the spotlight. Um, and so uh, I really encourage folks who are interested in sustainability to consider roles in real estate. We need you. We've got a lot to decarbonize. There's a lot of work to be done and the work's really fun. Cool. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a great conversation. I need a promise for you to come back in two years, and I want a report card. And I'm going to ask you all the same questions, but I'm going to drill down on how we're doing against all these goals. I cannot wait to tell you how our mushrooms turned out. Boom. Let's go get them. So, Sarah, thank you. This was really fun, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.